Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome back to the latest edition of Until Saturday. I'm Ari Wasserman, and we're going to have a two-part show today. We're going to talk about the SEC because we have to. Alabama is in the midst of transitioning from the greatest coach of all time, and one of the candidates to become the new greatest coach of all time is at Georgia. So we're going to have Kennington Smith the third, uh, Kenny the man is what I call him because the guy's just crushing it right now. And we have Seth Emerson, our Georgia beat writer and SEC writer on the show today. And then later on, we're going to get in with Chris Fanini a little bit. We're going to talk a little bit more thoroughly about Arizona's hire because we got into it a little bit early on in the week. Don't think we went deep enough on Arizona. We're going to talk about the Florida State ACC situation. We're going to get into a little Congress because as my producer Camelina knows, Love politics. So be sure to follow the podcast on Apple wherever you listen to your podcast. And also subscribe to the YouTube channel. Like, share, subscribe, whatever you can do to support both of those channels. Um, Certainly something that we would appreciate. And don't forget to leave a voicemail on the Until Saturday phone line, 316-462-9852. We will not be recording on Sundays during the offseason, but we will still be using that phone line because we love having your voices active in our show. Again, the number is 316-462-9852. 9852. I'm going on into the offseason. Um, our cadence for the show is going to be me hosting a show on Tuesdays, and the great Nicole Auerbeck will be in the feed on Friday, bringing you up to speed on everything that you need to know about college football, recruiting, all that stuff. Uh, rule changes, you know how it goes. So why don't we go right into the show here, start off with some of this SEC talk that is so pertinent to what's happening right now. If you're living under a rock, Alabama lost Nick Saban a week ago and in the time since, has hired Kalen DeBoer. They have hired some staff members, which we're going to get to on the show. And after hiring Kalen DeBoer, they've lost a lot of players, which brings um, up a discussion to be had about where Alabama stands in the pantheon of the conference moving forward and what this means for the rest of them. So we have the two best players on our team here to come help me and talk about that. Kenny, first of all, you've been covering everything that's been happening here with Alabama and all the players that have been leaving recently, Caleb Downs and... Um, Caden Proctor have entered the portal, which were the latest two of a pretty big exit from the Alabama program. Can you get, bring us up to speed on where Alabama's at right now? Yeah. Um, you know, to your point, as everybody's trying to wait out this 30 day process, I think it's important to note that this is not going to go the full course because at a certain point, these kids are going to have to enroll in classes and be full-time students for the semester. So I don't expect this to go into February 9th, which is the 30-day deadline, but this is a critical week. And I think this is the the next few days into the weekend are going to be the the last moments of potential big exits and mass exits out of the out of the roster. So that's kind of where Alabama is at right now. They're still trying to fill out a coaching staff. But before we started recording, 
Robert Bala, who was the inside linebackers coach, announced that he wasn't returning to the program. They still have a couple of vacancies, like special teams, coordinator, another on defense. So still trying to figure out the roster, trying to work on roster retention. And the coaches are out on the road recruiting right now. Um, They've had several decommitments in the 2025 class. We've seen uh, Alabama coaches kind of popping up around different high schools in Alabama taking visits. So they're they're kind of you know pointed at all different type of directions to try to stabilize where the program is at. But I think you know a week from now it'll be a lot more stabilized and we can start looking ahead to spring practice and who's on the roster. And then at that point we'll have a better idea of where the roster holes are and what they'll be targeting in the post spring practice portal window. You know, there's a lot to to happen here with the portal guy, Seth. I'm going to bring you in on this. Uh, you guys have seen that picture of that dude who's like standing behind a tree, that meme, like rubbing his hands, like waiting in the wings. Uh, Georgia yeah. has kind of been that guy for the last two years in, in the sense that they are now kind of trying to replace or on the verge of replacing Alabama in the hierarchy of the sport. Um, but now Georgia, without Nick Saban in the way, seems to have a clear path both on the field and with some of the players that are, are in the portal here. Yeah, and I guess – they wish they had sent Saban out a little earlier. Uh, so they'll Saban and Alabama will always have that over Georgia that they, they won the last time they played. Although they, Georgia will be able to say they won a national championship, two of them more recently than Saban did at Alabama. Um, but yeah, no, this is, this is a chance. If, if Georgia, for instance, were by the time you're listening to this has Caleb downs, um, this is, Kirby Smart's welcome to the SEC message to Kalen DeBoer. Um, I think Kalen DeBoer may be getting that message already when he's losing these guys. I mean, he may lose Caden Proctor just, quote-unquote, to Iowa. Um, It's just kind of a sign that it may be a bigger thing. Like, Ari, you wrote about this in talking to the guy who was Washington's general manager and is now Alabama's general manager. And I'm I'm curious whether we are going to see a – big change in just how Alabama builds its roster and how we've come to know Alabama. We've come to know Alabama as one of those with Georgia and Ohio state, the the three teams that you knew every year, we're going to have more talent than everybody else. Is Alabama going to go a little bit more the Washington route where they're going to kind of be more about fit and evaluation and getting those kind of guys or Kalen DeBoer with a better on paper brand to recruit to does it get back to kind of you know top five recruiting classes once he gets his feet under him that's going to be interesting but we know how georgia is going to build its roster and yeah they're being very active in the transfer portal uh they have six as of now they already have a alabama safety jake pope um but he was brought in for kind of depth and long-term upside purposes caleb downs would obviously be be something more. And, and yeah, I, I do think that in a larger sense, that with this roster exodus you're seeing, Georgia is now the kind of unofficial king of the SEC. That doesn't mean that it'll end up that way in year one because schedules being what they are, Georgia has a tougher schedule. But um, this, you know, he's clearly Kirby, the, at this point, he's the most accomplished coach, head coach in college football active right now yeah um kenny there's been a lot of departures specifically in the uh, offensive line room in the secondary the defensive backs terry and arnold and kool-aid mckinstry have declared for the nfl draft they might have been two of the best dbs in the country um obviously jc latham is going to be in the nfl draft this year the right tackle um from alabama and then 
of course, losing left tackle Caden Proctor to the portal, and then Caleb Downs, um, who is probably going to be announcing a decision between Georgia and Ohio State in the coming day. Um, seems like Georgia is in a position to get this one. Um, obviously, as a, a future first-round draft pick and you know, as a freshman All-American who was all over the field and whoever gets him is plugging in an NFL player into their secondary. Um, before I go back to you, Kenny, though, real quick, Seth, what are you hearing about Downs um, for the people who are um, listening to this and how big of a boost would that be to an already animalistic roster that uh, Georgia has? When he went in the portal, when news broke Wednesday morning, he was going to go in the portal immediately. Uh, Georgia was the favorite because of events that happened five days before that with Traveris Robinson going from Alabama to Georgia. First, Georgia held off Alabama, which made a run. Kenny may have more insight on whether they actually offered him the D.C. position or whether it was just more money or just please, please, please stay in Tuscaloosa. Um, But Ohio State on Thursday making a big run at Caleb Downs. Um, you know, I, whether it'll be enough, you know, Georgia has home field advantage. Uh, I have information to believe that Caleb Downs is getting ready to move in in Athens on Friday, maybe Thursday night. Um, doesn't mean Ohio State may turn that. It, it seems like the the biggest shock here would be, though, if he goes back to Alabama, which kind of gets us back to kind of roster exodus at Alabama. Yeah, yeah. Kenny, you've been cooking uh, a lot on this podcast and on The Athletic, and I strongly recommend everybody who's listening to this go read both of their coverage. Seth and, and Kenny have been doing a great job, and uh, I can't imagine you know, being only a year into a beat having to cover the, the stuff that you're covering right now when you've done it professionally in, in, in a very good way. Um, I just wanted to touch base with you a little bit about the notion of where Alabama fans should be feeling right now, because I did write a column on Thursday about the changes that Seth was alluding to about how are they going to replace these guys? But this is kind of a complicated scenario because one, you have a a new coach who's never signed a top 200 player in his career as a power five coach. Granted, it's only been two years and you have a general manager at Washington who's coming in who doesn't view it the same way or or maybe didn't have to view it the same way as you do if you work at, at Georgia or Alabama, how should Alabama fans be feeling about this and Tell me a little bit more about the intricacies of the timing of the portal and how difficult it might be for Alabama to refill their roster. Yeah, I think I think frustration would probably be the word to describe Alabama fans. I think there is obviously a, a layer of sadness that Saban isn't coaching the team anymore, but just looking at it from where they are right now, there's a level of frustration because again, they're at a they're at a position where they're kind of a sitting duck. They have this roster with all of these talented players and there's this mass exodus of coaches. Nick Saban, pretty much the entire offensive staff, a lot of the defensive staff are are not on the roster anymore. So a lot of these coaches that brought them into Alabama aren't there anymore. And now there's an opportunity for other schools to come in and poach their roster. And Alabama's not in a position to really go out and try to seek players to replace them because they have to deal with their own things in-house. They're trying to fill out a coaching staff. They're trying to retain their own roster. They're trying to go out and, uh, and recruit prospects on the road. So it's not, an, it's not an enviable position. And I think that's where the frustration part comes in. I think there's also some frustration that players who seemingly would have huge roles next year are deciding to leave the program. Isaiah Bond would have been wide receiver one. You see what Kalen DeBoer and, and that crew did with Washington's wide receivers, Roma Dunze and Polka McMillan. You would think that Isaiah Bond would want to be a part of that, but he departs. He's going to Texas. Caleb Downs and Cater Proctor, two freshman starters who you would think would be staples of your roster for next season 
are now in the transfer portal and it looks like they're going other places. So I think there's some frustration that there are players that you would think would have huge roles that decide to leave versus, you know, there are players who haven't played a lot and they're going on and there are more depth purposes and that hurts, but you kind of understand that. So I think that's kind of where the frustration is at for, for Alabama fans. And as far as what this means for the the next window, um, I think we touched on it. You can't get in-conference players in the spring portal window. So if a player enters from Georgia or Florida or whatever in the post-spring practice window, Alabama wouldn't be able to get those guys, but they can recruit nationally. I think you're kind of just wanting to know what this roster is going to look like for spring practice and then how many young players can take a step up and maybe you feel better about a a certain position in the post-spring window than you do right now. And then at that point, you'll be able to go out nationally and try to fit, you know, find players who can fit some of these, these voids. So what I would say to Alabama fans is it is frustrating right now. And it feels like the roster is kind of reeling at this point, but this is far from over. I mean, it's January. There are going to be plenty more W's and plenty more L's between now in the first game. So we have no idea what the 2024 roster is going to look like when it's all said and done. So just, um, you know, be patient right now and kind of let this thing play out. Alabama is in a pretty difficult situation, though, because they did not know that Nick Saban was retiring during the first transfer window, a time during which they could have replenished all of the talent that they are now losing as a result of it. And when they go into the portal window in April, They aren't allowed to get SEC players, which are probably the most likely to raise the bar talent-wise and athleticism-wise in order to get to where they've been. Seth, have you seen um, a talent exodus like this before and covering a team that has a, a depth and wealth of talent? Do you think that the situation with the transfer portal rules and the timing that this is happening at for Alabama, it's even possible for them to feel the roster that looks like the Alabama team that you've teams that you've covered in the past? It's uh, this is unprecedented because of the circumstances, because of the Saban retirement on top of the portal rules and and the the window situation. Um, There's probably been more than this in terms of pure number of players who have left. But the one it's most reminiscent of is LSU after the 2019 season, where that was. I think 14 players. It was a record at that point. Georgia surpassed it a couple years later. 14 players drafted. Um, and then other players portaled because there was a portal at that point. Um, but I don't think there was a one-time exemption at that point. Um, and then going into the 2020 season, you had opt-outs like Jamar Chase opted out. Uh, so that's different circumstances, but it's the most, I think, drastic case of a loaded roster losing this many players. The one difference is if you're being hopeful for Alabama is they bring back their quarterback. LSU didn't bring back Joe Burrow that year. Um, on the other hand, you're competing in an SEC where Georgia's bringing back his quarterback. Texas is bringing back his quarterback. Um, I did a um, I did a exercise earlier this week where I predicted every game in the SEC, and I actually ended up with LSU at eight and zero and twelve and zero and I, I don't think LSU is going to go 12 and 0 and 8 and 0. It was just this was the main point of this was to say, hey, this is what it's going to look like in a world without divisions and with these schedules. But it also kind of pointed to that this is just going to be a really tough grind for everybody. Um, and it's you've got Missouri out there, which they return a lot of people, they return their quarterback, and their schedule isn't that hard. 
They don't have Georgia or Alabama on it. Um, I don't think they have Texas on it. It's the SEC this year is going to be really interesting. And, you know, honestly, like, like Kenny said, there's a long way to go here. But because of the circumstances they're in, where they are losing this elite talent at a time when there aren't going to be elite players that will go in the portal now from other schools other than Washington and Arizona to replace it. Alabama has to go get players that are existing that went in the portal before January 2nd, unless they're from Washington. I mean, I don't know, maybe Kalen DeBoer can go get his team at Washington and just bring it back. Um, I don't, but because of that, I've, at this point, I've got Alabama as kind of a nine and three type team. Uh, but again, like Kenny said, that can change. Uh, they do get Georgia in Tuscaloosa, and they've they've got the spring window, and maybe this is where Kalen DeBoer, not being an SEC guy, will will be helped. Maybe going and getting non-SEC players in that spring window to fill gaps he sees in spring practice will will help. Yeah, and I think one thing I'll, I'll say to that in the spring window is Alabama notoriously has done very well in the spring portal window. I'm thinking of like a Jamison Williams, somebody like that, that they were able to to pull from Ohio State and became an instant impact player. This past spring uh, window, Jalen Key, who ended up being a starter at Strong Safety, Trey Amos, who ended up playing a huge role on the team as a third cornerback and had a really big impact on the SEC championship. McCool McKinstry got hurt. These are guys they added in the spring window. So there are going to be talented and quality players in that spring window for Alabama to, to plug holes. And depending on where the roster is at, at that point, you hope that young players on the roster are able to, to take a step up and a Jalen Milrow is able to continue developing. And on defense, they have Deontay Lawson and Jaha Campbell. Those guys can continue to, to develop and you feel pretty good about the roster that you have at that point. You just need to fill a couple of gaps and uh, you'll have a team that I feel like you would think is in playoff contention next year. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the icon of vacations. Icon of the seas. Arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. And now let's turn the page to some of the big defensive 
hires that Kalen DeBoer's made for Alabama, getting two standing group of five head coaches to come join his defensive staff, South Alabama head coach Kane Womack and Buffalo head coach Maurice Lindquist. Um, Womack will be the defensive coordinator and Lindquist will be the uh, defensive assistant. Um, It kind of feels like they're running back uh, 2020 Indiana a little bit. Uh, Womack was a defensive coordinator at Indiana during that 2020 COVID year where uh, the Hoosiers kind of shocked the world and uh, the rules to get Ohio State into the championship game that year, but it was a really good year. Penix was there. Um, What do you think about the staff that he is assembling, first and foremost, DeBoer is? And secondly... Um, you did write a column, I think five or six days ago, uh, wondering whether or not Alabama made the right hire, and the headline suggests that they did yes because of history. Can you take us through uh, your understanding of the defensive hires that Alabama has made, um, how they can accumulate talent necessary in order to do so, and why history says that this is the right thing to do? Yeah, so looking at, I'll first start with the coaching staff question. I think there are very two clear strategies that Kalen DeBoer is trying to execute. On offense is continuity, bringing his entire Washington staff into the Alabama fold, retaining Robert Gillespie on the defensive side. He's definitely leaning towards younger coaches and experience in the South. Kane Womack is from the South. His father is one of the original, I guess, um, innovators of the 425 defense and Coastal Landshark defense at Ole Miss, and Kane Womack coached under him. So deep SEC ties there. Uh, Mo Linquist also has coached in the South, coached for the Dallas Cowboys, coached in, in the SEC footprint, it retained Freddie Roach on the defensive line, Alabama alum, obviously has Southern ties and they still have more positions to to fill. So I think I, I like the approach of trying to, to find young, hungry, experienced coaches who know the Southern footprint to kind of uh, replenish that that roster on that side of the ball because that's where really the, the majority of the exits have been. It's been in the defensive background. It's been on the defensive side of the ball because as we know, Nick Saban, you know, that was kind of his his baby, the, the defensive backs room, and he's a you know more of a, of a defensive-minded coach. So I like what they're doing. I think it's very notable that he was able to pull two sitting head coaches at the Division One level to be assistants on his staff. Malinquist was coaching at Buffalo, and as we mentioned, uh, Womack was coaching at South Alabama. So I like what they're doing as far as you know defensively scheme wise it's going to be different than what Alabama has seen in the past um Nick Saban's defenses have evolved over time, but it is at its core a 3-4 defense. They're moving to a 4-2-5 based scheme. There's new terminology um, and there's going to be players that kind of fit different roles. And what I would say is go to uh, you know theathletic.com. I wrote a, a film study on this, so I included GIFs. I included a lot of personnel data, statistical analysis, kind of comparing and contrasting South Alabama to Alabama. So please go check that out if you, you know. Penny knows ball. Interested. Football yeah. guy. Yeah, <laughs> he's a football guy. Yeah, uh, the, I don't, I don't know how to do any of that stuff. So I, w- I would read yeah. it. It was really good. Yeah, appreciate it, appreciate it. And then as far as um, you know, the history with Kalen DeBoer, I think you look at his history as a head coach and what he was able to do at the NAI level. And I know people are going to question that competition, but he was able to win at a high level and what he was able to do, kind of holding the brunt of responsibility at that level. He knows what it's like to run a program. And then as he's continued to elevate throughout college football, he's continued to win and find success everywhere he's been. I think looking at it from just a, a X's and O standpoint, him being seven and three as a, um, you know, as an underdog straight up is a, a pretty impressive mark in terms of what he's able to do with quote unquote, lesser talent going up against more talented teams. So that history is on his side. And I think, what I was more so trying to point out was that people will say that he doesn't have any Southern ties, but neither did Urban Meyer, who 
just like Kalen DeBoer was coaching out on the West Coast. He had very creative offensive schemes. Urban Meyer was coaching Alex Smith. Kalen DeBoer is coaching Michael Penix. And he was able to come to the South and build out a really strong staff with Dan Mullen and Charlie Strong and all the assistants that he had and find success in the Southeast. Brian Kelly did it, doesn't have any SEC, you know, roots. And he's trying to do the same thing at LSU. In his first year, they won the SEC West. In his second year, he coached the Heisman Trophy winner. Nick Saban is another one who didn't have any ties to the South. He had been a head coach at other places and he was coaching, you know, in that SEC footprint for the first time. So there are case studies that show that coaches who have won at high levels and know how to run programs can come to the Southern footprint and find success. A lot of that just is kind of dependent on the coaching staff. So that was, um, that two-parter is kind of a full circle type yeah. of, 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 of moment that we're kind of coming to here, but that's kind of where I'm at with Kalen DeBoer. It's important to note, too, that uh, 16 players that signed uh, national letters of intent with South Alabama this year were three-star prospects from Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, and I believe one was from Georgia. So uh, the defensive assistants here have a really good sense of the South, too, but you heard it from Kenny's mouth uh, all Kalen DeBoer has to do is go find Tim Tebow and Percy Harvin and he'll be ready to go. So I, I think that it's <laughs> a um, it's it's always comes back to that for me. It's are you going to be able to do that and are you going to be able to do it at a high level consistently? And I know that the game has changed quite a bit since 2010, um, even so much since 2009, where the portal and the accumulation of talent is a much different game than it was back then. But will Kalen DeBoer be able to sign top five classes to me is always going to be the thing that signifies whether or not Alabama is still Alabama. Alabama has, I think since 2011, um, only been outside of the top three in the recruiting rankings once. And uh, that was when they finished number five, I believe in 2000, I think it was 18 or 19. I can't remember what year it was. Um, And they've won seven in a row during that span and 10 out of 13 during that span. Georgia is the only other team in the country that has finished, um, with the number one overall class outside of Texas A&M. So the question I have for you, Seth, as we move forward here is um, I think that it's pretty clear to say that Georgia is the undisputed best program moving forward in the SEC until Alabama proves that it's it's still who we think it is or, or who it, we've become accustomed to expecting. We've talked about Caleb Downs. Um, we've talked about, you know, uh, Travarius Robinson on this, you know, that the staff moved from Alabama to Georgia and how much that impacts things for the Bulldogs um, with Saban, with, with Nick Saban gone um, outside of Georgia, do you see other sec teams that can, you know, fill into power roles? Like I think LSU, for instance, if you, you if you took, um, and this is an Ari take, so, so forgive me, but if you stripped everybody every, duck, here we go. <laughs> I think if you stripped every coach away from their program and you just rank programs based on location, tradition, where they are, all those things that Georgia and LSU stack up if are not better than Alabama, just based on what it is. I think Nick Saban's presence at Alabama elevated how we view Alabama in terms of a job. Um, and the reason why I say that is Nick Saban could have elevated it to a point uh, to a place where that's no longer the case, but LSU is always going to be lurking in the shadows. I believe they have the number one overall player in the 2025 class committed at quarterback wide receiver and running back um, or three positions. They have the number one overall player in the country yet um, outside of Georgia, Seth, who do you, who strikes you as uh, a team that can kind of rise up into the new hierarchy of this conference uh, right away, Texas coming off a playoff uh, yeah. trip quarterback coming back um, pretty solid recruiting because it's Texas. They've, they went and got 
the guy who was going to be Alabama's best receiver. Uh, yeah. And they have a good schedule. When I did this go through everybody's schedule next year, I actually had Texas originally eight. No, but then just for funsies, I had them lose at Texas A&M in the, uh, in the last one. Um, LSU, you're right about them. I, I mentioned how earlier I had them eight and O and again, I think, you know, conservatively, I think they're going to lose a couple games somewhere. I just look at their schedule. I'm not sure which ones. On the other hand, Georgia has to go to Alabama still. They have to go to Texas. They have to go to Ole Miss. Um, Ole Miss is the interesting one because they are not one of those that Ari, you would put like in normally in your top tier. But, yeah, yeah. But yeah. they're, but they're what going they did. for it. They've, they've, they got Jackson Dart coming back. They don't have Quinshawn Judkins coming back, but um, they've got their their receivers coming back and they went in the portal and got guys like Warren Nolan. Now they, they lost Tyler Barron. They thought they had him and then he flipped to Louisville of all places. Um, but it just points to the SEC is going to be really strong right away in this first year. And I, I think some good teams are going to miss the playoffs. The, some surprising teams are, are like in Alabama, like right now, I don't think I would pick Alabama to make the playoffs. And some of that's just going to be because of how tough the schedule is going to be. And I don't think it's a slam dunk for Georgia to make the playoffs because of their schedule. Um, and and I think, uh, oh, God, I do not want to get into a debate with Ari on the uh, sanctity Did you just of say the regular that? Yeah, season. I just, yeah. <laughs> but I, I have said all along, <laughs> and, it, and it came home to me when I went through this. And if you haven't seen the story I did, again, everyone's kind of latching on to, oh, Seth made these predictions. Seth picked LSU to go 12 and 0. What is he smoking? It's like, well, no, this was just an exercise to show what it's going to look like. A very early look at what it's going to look like. And one of the things that came home is it's it's going to be hard. And I think every game still is going to matter. It may not matter as much if a team is 11 and 0 sometime in November and they know they're in even if they lose one or two more games, but Georgia knows that they've got to go beat Georgia or Texas or Alabama, for instance, in the first couple months, or, or they may be locked out. Um, it, it's it's going to be a grind in the SEC. And yeah, to, to kind of turn it back to everything we're talking about, Alabama is, is in danger of falling out of the picture in year one. But I am, I, I what Kenny was pointing to as in the lack of Southern ties, I'm, I'm not as worried about that either. And the fact that Kalen DeVore has won everywhere he's been. I, I I think that's good too. The the thing is, you wonder if there is a limit to that because Brian Kelly never did win a national championship at Notre Dame. Um, he hasn't won one at LSU, but he's only had two years. Uh, it, it's it's still tough. It's still really tough to do it. Um, but Alabama obviously made a really interesting hire, and it, it's the more you watch things, the more you kind of you get fascinated. To, to see how it goes because they didn't go get Dabo Swinney or someone with Alabama lineage or anyone from the Saban tree. They went away from the South, away from the Saban tree. And it's, it's, it's a really fascinating thing to watch. Yeah. I think that like watching Kalen DeBoer last year and, and Grubbs last year was just a, a thing of beauty. Like the way that they drew up that offense, like picturing those guys with Alabama athletes is really, really fun. I mean, they had Romo Dunze and Michael Penix Jr. Um, they had they had guys on that Washington offense, but just, you know, sustained um, 
elite level success paired up with those minds is a very exciting thing. No one, I think, um, is saying that Kalen DeBoer isn't a phenomenal coach. I think that they will have Alabama as ready as they possibly can be based on whatever limitations they have uh, on the roster. My number one question, and I think everyone's number one question, is whether or not Kalen DeBoer, Courtney Morgan, his general manager, um, if that's going to be the title there in Tuscaloosa, and the staff that he's assembling will be able to continue the tradition of titles. And I don't mean winning national titles. I mean winning recruiting titles Mm -hmm. Um, or at least being in the mix to win those because I think if not, it's going to be a very different place. Mm -hmm. And Seth, you just said you're not sure if Georgia or Alabama is going to make the playoff next year. Oh, give me my popcorn. I'd love to see what what that looks like in Tuscaloosa if that happens in in nine months. You don't want him to go the Dan Mullen route and get overconfident in his own evaluation. Like that, right. That's the danger for, for Kalen. I think a lot of people, that's a, that's an apt point. Cause I think a lot of people are comparing him to Brian Harson. Um, not comparing him to Brian Harson, saying Brian Harson is when things go bad. Mm-hmm. A coach who comes into the SEC and thinks he's going to out evaluate guys like Alabama, uh, Nick Saban, and, and Kirby well, Smart. They, they evaluate, evaluate just fine. Yeah, like I, I could, I could yeah. go on. We we have to run, but I could go on and on about the three stars. And by the way, walk on quarterback that Georgia had on their national championship teams. Like they've they've evaluated very well. I think there's this this. Um, misunderstanding and i think that it's partially because of me but with listeners and readers too um georgia and alabama evaluate their rosters or have traditionally evaluated their rosters just as well or better than everybody else in the country even though they're getting the best players i think the point is that evaluating a player who ranks number 17 overall in the country is a lot easier to do than it is to evaluate the number 791 best player in the country, because as you get lower in the rankings, the more subjective it gets. So it's not that these like Georgia, I know will look at the top 100 and they might not want 50 of the top 100 players. That's evaluation, but evaluation in the way that Courtney Morgan would probably describe it is finding a three-star kid with no P five offers before everybody else, seeing the tools early, getting him early in the process and then bringing him in and watching him flourish. I don't know. Um, obviously, that can't stop and won't stop at a place like Alabama. I just don't think Alabama is going to have the benefit of the doubt to allow the and developmental process to, that. to play. He, he can't, mm-hmm. and I'm sure yeah. he's not. He he can't be coming into Alabama and the SEC and saying we're going to do it a different way, and we're going to kind of moneyball it, you know, because everybody else is also yeah. looking for those diamonds in the rough. Everyone's looking for those under recruited three stars and and, and lower ranked four stars. Yeah, and, it's either. And I think we're going to get a sense in the first class whether it's going to work or not. I think like I think we'll get a sense in the first few months if based on how many top fives Alabama's in, how many visits they're getting in the spring, like who's coming. Like, I think that we got a sense very early on when Harson uh, that Harson wasn't going to work out like yeah. we'll see. We'll see, Kenny. And Any one, last thoughts on what on what yeah. that might, what that looks like for Alabama? Yeah, one thing I want to put on people's radar is for a good early test for Kalen DeBoer and what could be a potential early statement win on the recruiting trail is Ryan Williams, who is taking an official visit to mm-hmm. Alabama this weekend, right. and he has a couple more OV set before he announces on February 3rd, I believe. So, uh, again, another parallel back to Saban. When Saban got Julio Jones out of Foley High School, that was a, that was a recruiting win that set the tone for the Saban era. This could be something similar 
uh, of that. Like, I don't want to put that on Ryan Wells. He's a young kid, but you know what I'm trying to say? Like, if he's able to keep this kid in state yeah. after Saban's retirement, that would be a massive, massive, massive win and would put Alabama on a huge um, trajectory in terms of what type of momentum they could build on the recruiting trail. So I just want to yeah. put that on people's radars. And and I think we'll, that will kind of, you know, be a good early barometer of where this is at. Well, thanks, guys. I appreciate the 30-minute discussion about the SEC. Uh, we are going to move on now to big-time football in Tucson, Arizona, and uh, big-time football in American Congress rooms. I, I'm not a politics guy. We'll, we'll get to it. Thanks, guys. And now let's welcome in Chris Vanini. Uh, we spoke a little bit, uh, or a lot of bit, earlier in the week on the previous edition of Until Saturday about the Arizona situation. Jed Fish being hired away uh, from Arizona to Washington and the fear that Washington was also going to take their best players. Um, we had some discussions about that in which I was trying to be empathetic and say that I felt that at times it feels like it is hopeless to be an Arizona fan. And it turned into some pretty interesting discourse on Twitter about uh, me not understanding the sport or me not loving the sport as much as other people do and questioning whether or not people should be fans of a team is bad form. And Chris came to my rescue. I really appreciate you, Chris. You are my knight in shining armor. Um, but I, I wanted to talk about it a little bit, not because I want to be uh, angry, uh, not because I want to be combative, but I want to have an interesting discussion about this for other people who weren't on Twitter who might have been made to feel the same way as some others who were were outspoken about it. So thanks for coming on. We're going to get into Arizona in a deeper in a deeper sense. We're going to get into Congress. We're going to get into F Florida State. we got a lot coming up here for the remainder of the show. But first, let's start here. When you were listening to that, like, how did you feel? So, like, it is known, and you have admitted it, like, you focus a lot of your attention on the top teams in the sport. To you, the national championship is is one of, if not the most important thing, which is fine. You and I have had our disagreements about what we love most about college football. People can love dif different things about college football. We, uh, we, you and I drove to Houston together to the national mm -hmm. championship game and had this conversation. You and I have yelled at each other at the North Park Mall here in Dallas over this sometime. We have. And, and that, is why, that is why I was defending you on this one because... If people didn't know, a like a 50-second long clip from the episode was pulled, put up on Twitter, a comment from Ari saying, like, if you lose if you lose Jed Fish and all your players right when you have success, like, what's even the point of rooting for Arizona? And again, that was a point of empathy. And the reason it annoyed me that this kind of got taken out of context, or at least was clipped the way it was, was because it was a 20-minute conversation mm -hmm. about Arizona and Washington and the dynamics of everything. So for all the complaints that Ari doesn't talk about, you know, the other teams or whatever, it's exactly what we were doing here. That is why I was kind of annoyed at the reaction to it and why I came to your defense about that. And, and you've made comments like you're trying to open up more and, and not watch, but just kind of enjoy and appreciate more of college. Football, oh, I watch. Is, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So like, I just uh, it kind of became a thing on Twitter the other day, so I just we just wanted to uh, yeah address that here, and I wanted to stand up for you here as well. The thing that I think I struggle with sometimes on this pod, Chris, is that I um, speak in every episode like everybody who's listening has listened to all of them, and I think at times things get lost in translation, and certainly when you clip certain things from a show, 
and play them when you don't have the whole context of the conversation or my tone or my temperament, it's very easy to take the strong things that I say on this show and make them seem like something that they aren't. And maybe that's something I have to work on as a podcast host. But, you know, I have a group chat of five very close friends of mine that I went to school with who were very upset about this. And I think maybe that influenced my thought process a little bit because I'm watching Arizona fans in actual angst about what's going on in Tucson. And I felt empathy for them in the position that they're in. Um, I said on the previous show that I do, I did not connect to Arizona athletics the way that other normal students do. Um, that isn't because I didn't like sports or I don't love college football or that I didn't feel like there was a point to rooting for Arizona. That was because I was pursuing my education and being a journalist. And I was more in press boxes, trying to be an unbiased reporter um, in order to get enough clips to get internships than would lead to the path that I'm currently on. I was not getting hammered in the student sections with all of my friends, which speaking of which is one of the regrets I have in my life. So, (laughs) and I do know too, that there needs to be an interesting discussion. I don't know if today's the day or a future day of how and why we spend the time on the show, on the teams that we do. And we have to acknowledge the elephant in the room here, which is the biggest schools or the ones competing for the national championships have the largest fan bases and are the most interesting to a grand scale of people than talking about niche programs that aren't necessarily in the same element. That doesn't mean that your team isn't important or that I don't care about them at all or that we don't feel that they're worthy of talking. In fact, I think we spent an inordinate amount of time this year talking about programs um, that we haven't talked about much in the past. I love the sport as much as you do. I like the mayonnaise, okay? I like the Pop-Tart. I like the crazy grab-ass calls. I like the 6-3 to three games. This isn't a fanhood measuring contest. Of course, I understand why you would root for your alma mater or the place that you grew up rooting for. Yeah, and by the way, speaking of that drive to Houston, I asked you as we were heading to the championship game, could you imagine yourself covering any other sport? Would you want to cover another sport? And you said no, and I'm no. Like, this is the sport we love the most. So that's why we're here. That's why we talk about it. It's like... Question my fanhood of the sport as I dedicated my entire life to covering it is a very weird flex, Um, but here we are. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I gave probably 10 more minutes of of airtime to angry people that I didn't want to do, but I'm happy that we did it. Let's focus on Arizona's coaching hire and talk about one of the teams that we don't talk about that much. Um, Arizona... 
um, hired San Jose State head coach Brent Brennan from San, like I said, San Jose State. Uh, five year deal, uh, $17.5 million. That's 2.6 uh, on average and 2.2 coming up front. I think that the financials are important. But the thing that stood out to me the most, Chris, as we talk about Arizona, where it goes from here and the investment and the buy in from the program is that he has a $4.25 million assistant coaches pool, which is a sizable investment in the staff that was even larger than the one that Jed Fish had when he was the head coach. So as we talk about losing Jed Fish and the hopelessness or the feeling of hopelessness that that comes with it, their two best players, quarterback Noah Fafita and um, T-Mac, the wide receiver, have not entered the portal as of yet. The new coach uh, is hired, has some Arizona backgrounds, was um, an assistant under the most successful Arizona coach of all time, uh, Dick Tomey, and things seem to be kind of leveling off a little bit. T-Mac and Fafito were at the Arizona basketball game on Wednesday night. What, what's your take on the hire and how Arizona's program is being sustained moving forward after a crushing blow? We'll start at the end there with the players. Not only that, but Arizona had, what, nine or so players go into the portal yesterday, and yes. those two were not in that group. So that's right. y- y- you never know for sure. Obviously, you got to wait a while to, to know till that's set. But the fact that uh, Fafita and T-Mac have not gone in the portal yet is a good sign for Arizona so far. So we will wait to see how that goes. And they the did higher, lose some pretty good yeah. guys. I want to just say, I'm going to let you yeah. cook. I'm sorry. But I want to say um, they lost uh, offensive lineman Raymond Polito, who was a uh, true freshman starter on the offensive line, I believe. Damon Williams is a highly rated quarterback uh, prospect that was coming in. Running back Jonah Coleman were three of the players that were amongst those nine. Um, those guys have not left yet. They have the option to come back. Um, but the fact that T-Mac and Fafita were not on that list was a was a nice, encouraging sign for Arizona. Okay, go ahead. Yep. And Brennan uh, almost got this job Last time when Fish got it, there was mm-hmm. kind of a group within Arizona. Some wanted Brennan, some wanted Fish. Fish got the job, did a really good job. Now you come back to Brennan, who has continued to do a good job at San Jose State, which is one of the toughest jobs in college football. It's been one of the least resourced jobs in college football. Our Antonio Morales did an embed with them before the USC game this year, and it includes stuff like coaches having to set up and take down 100 folding chairs. And so it's a difficult job. And they've had three winning seasons in the last four years. They went seven and one, won the Mountain West in 2020. So it's a guy who knows the place, knows the area, has won. To me, this was a layup. Like this was obviously the guy to hire. Just like I think for Washington, kind of Jed Fish was kind of the obvious choice. I think if you weren't going to get a Lance Leipold type, uh, made sense as well. This makes sense. Now, the contract here is interesting because you noted that the assistant salary pool went up, but the contract for Brennan averaging 2.6 is less than what Jed yep. Fish was at, which is 3.25. That 2.6 average would have been the lowest in the Pac-12 this year. The 2.2 this year is actually less than he made at San Jose State this year, which is 2.3, which I don't think people realize that Brent Brennan was making 2.3 million there. So, it's it's a it's a move for Brennan more about getting into the power four, getting into the Big 12, a bigger job with a lot more resources and stuff like that, as opposed to taking some giant contract somewhere else, because Arizona's financials are a problem. You know, there was the what $240 million budget thing they're still working out. So uh, it's I had a budget miscalculation in my house, too. We uh, had a few of those. $240 million? Yeah. 
Uh, I mean, it felt like it. Yeah. So good hire. Uh, Arizona's in a tough spot, but I think considering everything, you, you hired a really good coach. And at the moment, you've got two of your best players still in the program. So now that's good. There is so there is a uh, possibility that they could go through spring football. They don't like his vibe and players still leave like they aren't out of the woods yet when it comes to some of their best players. But the fact that they didn't uh, that their two best players didn't automatically just follow Jed Fish to Washington is a pretty nice thing. My question to you here is, um, you know, I saw Gentle Ben's put Jet, which is a bar that's like on one of the main uh, drags of bars on Arizona's campus, like put Jed Fish Washington pictures in like the urinals and stuff. And like Arizona, like I, I've been following some fan reporters who cover the fan sites for U of A. Like there seems to be a bitter sentiment towards Jed Fish and what he built there and how he left. Um, I think partially because he did a very adamant job of expressing loyalty to U of A and wanting to stay for at least another year and then and then frantically left. What do you take um, or what is your opinion of? you know, despising somebody who helped get your program back on track when they leave? And do you think there is a code of honor that a coach should have when it when saying certain things or doing certain things um, in the media before taking another job? A, f- a few things. One, Arizona in general is not used to having a good coach leave for another job. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Mike, Mike Stoops was fired. Kevin Sumlin was fired. Rich Rod won, but got fired because of off the field stuff. You know, it's been a while since Arizona kind of had a coach good enough to get hired somewhere. And then when he leaves for a school that was in your conference this year, um, that hurts for any fan base w- without a doubt. That was the point you were trying to make, which was like Arizona finally had a coach who built up something and he bailed on it. And that sucks for fans. So I'm not surprised. I, th- I think. A lot of this stuff is just, you know, people are upset, you know, uh, bank on the the frustration of fans and throw some in the urinal and have people come to your bar and whatever. I I really don't. I don't think that's a big deal. I don't think Jed Fish would uh, think that was much of a big deal. In terms of the language used and the family and all these things. Yeah, like, that's the important thing. This this is, I I think, I think we're seeing fewer coaches kind of talk like that because everybody kind of understands what the deal is now. Even Jed Fish didn't at his Washington press conference. If you notice, there was a clip there. Somebody asked asked him, are you here for the long term? Exactly. And exactly. And again, something I said in the other podcast, he's a guy who has not been at the same job for three straight years until 2007 or since 2007. So it's a guy who has moved around a lot. So you can't be that surprised when a guy who moves around a lot moves around again. And yeah, if Florida opens in a year or so, if the NFL comes calling, I'm sure Jed Fish is going to listen. So it's just the nature of what it is, which is why, you know, it used to be coaches always said, don't commit to the coach, commit to the school because you, you, you're, that, you're coming for the whole experience. You're coming for all this stuff. And I think everybody kind of realized that that was nonsense you're coming for the coach. The coach is the one who recruits you. Your position coach is the one you're around all the time. And that's why players are leaving when their coach leaves because they're not connected to the school. They're connected to the coaches that they had. So, or, or in some cases, the money that they were getting. So I think it's just, it's more and more and more of a business and everybody kind of realizes that. And so I can understand why people are mad when someone talks about family and all this kinds of things and leaves because it's, it's not that anymore and it's not going to be. 
because yeah. the freedom of movement for coaches and players and the money being thrown around for everything, that's that's the game now. Yeah, real quick, we're going to we're going to go on to the next subject here, but I wanted to say one thing, Chris. Um and I think some people took my Arizona opinion to be that I'm just a disgruntled fan of the team. Like it's like this is the first time I'm being called biased for a place that I actually care about, you know, that I went to. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Um and it's funny because of all the places that I have covered and written about and stuff like the only place that I actually have a real personal connection to um, is Arizona. And I wrote a column three or four years ago for the athletic about why it is so freaking hard for programs to build something and why what Dabo Sweeney did um, at Clemson was so remarkable. And that was because um, he was afforded the time to build how he wanted to build it, even though they had some disappointing years at the beginning of his tenure. I think now if Dabo Sweeney started at Clemson in 2023 and had the same trajectory, he might not have made it through those first few years, even though I think he won 10 games in year two. Um, And the unre the unfortunate reality for a lot of places like Arizona and maybe even to Washington to a certain extent, because they lost their guy to Bama. It's a food chain, but either you have a coach and they stink and they get fired and not given enough time to build it because it's premature firing or they just stink and deserve it. Or B, you have a great coach who understands your situation, speaks your language, knows how to recruit your kids, has a good relationship with people in your town and, you know, in Southern California, and then they leave for a better job. And I just don't know what it would take. And maybe this is just an impossibility, but for a person like Jed Fish, or, you know, somebody like Kalen Tabor to be like, you know what? We're headed in the right direction here. I want to be here long enough to see it through. Everybody, and, you know, I guess not just in coaching, but in general, myself included. You know, I, I if you have a better opportunity come your way, you listen to that opportunity and are tempted by that opportunity. But it makes it so hard in this food chain scenario, even if Arizona's a really good team next year, what could they have been in year three, four, five, or six of the fish era? That makes me wonder, damn, like maybe there wouldn't be the concept of big and small if everybody had the same runway or the same finances or the same ability to hold on to people who get it. So um, that is uh, my thought process on the whole hopelessness or hopeful thing. I just, with Arizona, I wish they just had more time to, to build something that's all yeah and, and there, there have been coaches who have stayed i mean jeff trailer at utsa last year last year a couple years ago had a lot of interest for uh, a number of jobs he signed an extension at utsa with a huge buyout that started at like seven million dollars and that's part of the reason he didn't end up getting another job in this cycle and that he's still there so it's it's like you said like anybody you want to take a, another job at another place for more money, for more security, whatever. It's like, it's natural. Everybody kind of understands that now. Um, and you just, you kind of treat it like that. And I understand why fans could be upset because what makes college football different than the pros is that it does feel like it's more than a business transaction. You connect with the players because you feel like, hey, I went to school there. I walked through those same halls. I did these things. And even I if stayed in that dorm, are, yeah. Even even if players are mostly taking online courses or not, they're not having the real full college experience. There is a connection there 
that I think is different than pro sports. And I think it's important that college sports keeps that as much as uh, and that's the problem. And not to derail the show, maybe we go five extra minutes on this, but. In college football, the joy of it used to be you get to know somebody when they're 17. They come mm-hmm. to your school. They grow up like you did. They enroll in your school. They go through orientation. They live in a dorm. They stay in that school for three years, become a better young man the way that you did or a young woman the way that you did. And then they excel in the football field when their time arrives and they are a positive representation of your school. Now, um, you can't keep a coach at a place like this for more than three years if they're very successful, and you can't keep players uh, anymore from leaving and going. So I think the identity um, and that feeling in your heart that you have a connection to the people who walked your footsteps at these places is dwindling pretty quickly, pretty rapidly in the sport. And if you had a hard time connecting to the NFL because people are on contracts and they bolt from your city or they get traded. It's like, I think you can make the case that there's more stability on the players on your team in the NFL now than are in college. There is. And and I I think we'll wrap it up here, but I I think college basketball in the one and done era because of the NBA uh, lost a lot of that because you had a ton of guys coming through for one year and then they're gone one year and then they're gone. And you started to lose connections with the teams and you'd have players you saw for four years as much as yes, TV ratings are up. Attendance is great. Things are going great. I do think you can't discount that connection that people have. And um, it's just worth keeping in mind as college football goes into whatever its future is. Yep. Okay. Let's get into some more brainiac stuff. First, the project D one, the fun stuff, the the stuff that a real college football fan would want to talk about. Like somebody who just, (laughs) Loves the sport more than we do. Um, I'm going to go and I'm just going to hand the floor to you. We have two different court related things, or I don't know if that's the same thing, but let's start with the Project D1 hearing. It was a three hour hearing on Thursday. You were paying attention to all of it. Um, what do the listeners have to know about this hearing that might be lost if they're trying to figure out what was important on Twitter? Okay. This was the 11th congressional hearing we've had on NIL. This was based around a specific bill that is being passed around through the House for various mumbo-jumbo you don't care about. The hearing was whatever. The most interesting part was whether or not athletes should be employees, how they feel about that, all that kind of stuff. The most interesting parts to me was when Charlie Baker, the NCAA president, would talk about his proposal. You might remember this from a month or so ago. Yeah, it's Charlie like six Baker, weeks ago, yeah. Puts out this proposal. Players, you can opt in and pay your, pay at least half your athletes at least $30,000 each. Equal money go to men and women. There may or may not be a subdivision that they can opt into. NIL comes in-house and so forth. That, at the NCAA convention last week, officially was tasked to the D1 Council, which is presidents and ADs and stuff, to start looking into this. And... That the idea of that whole Project E1 thing that Charlie Baker is pushing is that we can pay players and we can keep it within the scope of the NCAA. But in order for this all to work, players cannot be employees because if they're employees, it opens up a, a can of worms and all this kind of stuff that is, is going to have to deal with. And there's there's a National Labor Relations Board case moving through. There are several lawsuits that would essentially deem athletes employees. In Charlie Baker's cases, 
Most schools can't afford to make their athletes employees. And if they're required to, you're going to have to cut sports. So I have this idea of we can come in, you can pay your players at least 30,000, by the way, that's the minimum. You could pay him a hundred thousand dollars each if you wanted to. Like it, that is just the minimum number that he set. It could end up being lower or something like that. So he is, I, I, I don't know if it's going to happen. I don't know if it's going to pass. There's some skepticism at the group of five. They're worried about being left out and whatnot, but I do believe Baker is earnestly trying to find a solution to this without college sports blowing up. Because if the, if a lot of these lawsuits and things happen, college sports is going to kind of be blown up a bit. So it has that to is happen to save there. us from all the issues. I did a <coughs> not great job trying to come up with a small solution, if not for this, uh, t- for the Arizona issue earlier in the week. And it's like, if you can get something like this done, does it fix almost everything? Well... In terms of collective bargaining, players under contracts and stuff like that, I don't know if it would happen under Project E1. That's more the employee route, um, but the employee route has a lot of other things that you, mm-hmm. nobody listening to this cares about. So, Ari, I, I, on this situation, as coming from kind of the common fan who's not sitting through these three-and-a-half-hour boring hearings, like what questions do you have or what do you just kind of think about all this? We just like cut through the fat. What yeah. happened today that's going to have tangible change on our sport or could lead to today, tangible change on our sport? T- today, nothing. I, I mean, there have been many bills gone through, worked through. The NCAA feels like it needs an antitrust exemption in order to do the things it says it wants to do, which is let the schools pay the players uh, within their own guidelines. They're not going to be able to do that if they're employees and they have to be paid anyway. The whole thing, that whole thing blows up. So the idea is and and says as Congress, we need some antitrust exemption because Charlie Baker said today, like anytime the membership changes a rule now, somebody's upset about it and suing over it. That's what happened with the transfer stuff. That's what's happened with a lot of different things. And so the scope of what the NCAA could get from Congress, broad antitrust exemption, federal NIL, it's not clear. The NIL part seems kind of unlikely, but at the very minimum, they want that antitrust exemption saying, hey, we can make our own rules without somebody suing us over it. That is the gist of what they're trying to get done. Yeah. Um, Lastly, too, what does uh, in-house NIL look like to you? Probably the end of collectives. Um, That is so like Josh Pate had a good tweet the other day, which was in a decade from now, when we have revenue sharing with college athletes, it's going to be extremely weird to look back on the fact that the fans were asked to pay for the players. And that's true because it doesn't make any sense. The school pays for the coaches. The school pays for the facilities. Boosters chip in on those things, but boosters aren't paying for themselves. When it comes to NIL and buying players, which is what's going on, the fans are the ones who are doing it. It doesn't make any sense, really. And that's why Charlie Baker agrees that the richest schools that have all this money that are that have no idea what to do with it should be able to pay it to the players under the NCAA plan. So, yeah, that that is um, that is where things. But if stand everybody right now. if everybody gets paid a certain salary from the school and in house NIL exists, is there an uneven distribution of NIL dollars based on your marketability as an athlete in that world? That so, if it comes in house, 
it has to be for sure under Title IX. And there are legal questions right now whether it should or should not be under Title IX. If you have an official collective of the school and 95% of this collective's money is going to male athletes, is that Title IX compliant? Some people would say no, that has to be figured out. If it did come in in-house, um, it would probably have to fall under that in some form. Yes, but it would basically would no longer do you have some local businessman running the collective asking fans for money and giving it to the players. The school itself would be the one doing that. And that's not that that's not like the purpose of it necessarily. Like I asked one of the top administrators, I said like would this get rid of collectives? And they said, "Well, that's not directly the point, but pretty much yes." Hey guys, Chris from the future jumping in here real quick. After we recorded the pod, there was another update on one of the various NCAA legal fronts. The Justice Department is joining the lawsuit challenging the NCAA's transfer eligibility rules. If you missed it last month, seven state attorneys general sued the NCAA over the one-time transfer rule, believing that it uh, created restrictions on athletes' ability to earn uh, NIL money and academic opportunities. This led to a deal put in place with the NCAA where right now there is no limit on the number of transfers you can make without having to sit out. It's pretty much every year you can do it. The Justice Department joining in on this would seem to indicate that's probably going to remain the case uh, and become a permanent rule moving forward. It's also possible that other transfer restrictions could could get pulled back as well. We don't know where it's going to go. But since this, we're talking about the NCAA legal situations, just wanted to jump in with the latest on that one as well. Let's go through a lawsuit now. How about that? Because that's what more people stuff. love more about football. Um, Florida State is accused of disclosing ACC trade secrets. I think that that means television revenue. Um, the ACC is seeking an injunction against Florida State which bars the school from participating in the conference affairs due to Florida State's ongoing litigation uh, against the ACC um, in an attempt to break away from the conference and the ACC's grant of rights. Uh, What is your takeaway from this whole disaster, and um, how many years did you spend in law school? Uh, None, but I have read more legal filings this year. I've read more legal filings than stories about college football this year from Florida state to Mel Tucker to Pat Fitzgerald to EA sports to uh, James Madison. Like just it's nonstop with this stuff. So this one, it was a big hullabaloo when Florida state filed its lawsuit against the ACC last month, challenging the grant of rights, which means this contract that we signed that gives you our TV rights for home games. We feel like we should be able to get out of that goes to 2036. Turns out the day but which we reported the day before the ACC had pre-sued Florida State saying you can't challenge the grant of rights within the grant of rights in the contract it says you cannot challenge this. So that was kind of start of it. What happened yesterday not a major step forward but basically now the ACC is asking a judge hey, Florida State should not be involved in conference matters while it is suing the conference. It's also seeking some damages and things for revealing the ESPN contract that it has and the details that come along with it, which were rumored, but we didn't know for sure. And now we have a lot of the specifics that we didn't know for sure. Florida State put that in their lawsuit, so it was public like that. Because you remember, it was a whole big thing, the grant of rights, it's a secret. You got to go to ACC headquarters to, to find it. Turns out that Florida State had 
uh, given it to a reporter or a fan or somebody who filed a, a public records request for it and put it up on Warchant, <laughs> which was the point that I had made when there was a whole secret. I was like, guys, it's public. It's here. Somebody already uploaded it. <laughs> it's already here. And so that whole thing was was weird. And so um, this is going to be a long process. It's hard to say where it's going to go. I don't think even think the jurisdiction's been set yet because ACC filed in North Carolina, Florida State filed in Florida. It's going to be long. It's going to be ugly. But Florida State is not happy, as we know. They want out of the ACC, as they've made clear many times before. It's just not clear if they're going to be able to. It's at minimum half a billion dollars and could be more, could get settled down to less. Nobody really knows. But that's the fun stuff. Chris, what does it mean to be involved in ACC affairs? Voting on decisions that the conference makes. This was the whole Pac-12, Pac-2 thing, because the idea was, hey, when USC and UCLA left the conference or said they were going to leave, the Pac-12, George Kalievkov basically said, like, yeah, we're not involving them in our stuff now because they're on their way out. So we can make votes. We can make decisions on the conference. When it got down to two... Oregon State and Washington State said, hey, they're all leaving. They shouldn't be allowed to make conference decisions. A judge ultimately agreed with them on that. So ACC is saying, hey, they're suing us. They've inflicted damage on us by revealing these details. While that's going on, they shouldn't be involved in the decision making of the conference. Fair enough. Is there anything else that you think is important to that? Or should we wrap up the show? Um, You know, going to look into it further kind of as the weeks and months go by, but where Florida state's going to get the money to do some of this, we'll see. It's not looked like uh, according to Sportico that they finished the fiscal year, 2023 in debt, um, turned a profit last year. So it's, it's, you're going to need a half again, if you're going to need a half a billion dollars to do this, you're going to need private equity or something like that to come in, which is a whole other can of worms that would be open. Mm-hmm. So Florida state wants out. It's going to do whatever it can to get out. Uh, Florida State did sign the grant of rights through 2036. And the ACC has said, like, look, you agreed to this. You can't just back out now because you don't like where it's going. You agreed to this on all these different things. It wasn't a secret. You know, your president signed it. We've got the signature. Like, it's all there. So I, I don't I'm not a lawyer. I don't know how the case is going to go. I just feel like financially the- speaking, if it costs that much money to go through with all of this stuff, is that more than you're going to be missing out on in revenue if you were to join the sec or the big 10 i don't know the math off the top of my head there but that's a lot of money right that's the question that's why private equity made me involved can you make more of that money back if you come out you join the big 10 or the sec but we don't know for sure that the sec or big 10 would invite wants him yeah because the sec network is already in florida so you wouldn't get a boost in fees for the network being there and honestly North Carolina and Virginia are the schools that are kind of being eyed more by the Big Ten SEC if they come available because they're new states, they're growing states, great academic schools, all these different things. So Florida State doesn't have a home if it gets out. It can't have the SEC and Big Ten are not going to do anything until they're free because then they're going to be looked at as tampering. And that opens up another legal issue. So they can't promise them anything until they're free from that. But we don't know where it's going to go. TV revenue is not. Uh, growing the way it used to be. The SEC is not going to nine conference games in part because ESPN doesn't want to pay more. And if ESPN is already getting Florida State for $30 million a year, they're not going to want to add it to the SEC for 
60 million dollars a year like you're just you're paying double for the team you already had so it's it's a real mess nobody really knows what's going to happen when you want out of your conference you usually end up getting out of it but we've never had one that would be this costly and so it's kind of unprecedented uh thanks to everybody for listening to the latest edition of until saturday um it's always great to have you guys here. Uh, be sure to follow the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts on Apple, Spotify, wherever. And also be sure to subscribe to the Until Saturday YouTube channel. The links to both of those channels can be found in the show's description. Um, also, be sure to follow the Until Saturday newsletter uh, where we'll send out emails from our coverage from The Athletic to your inbox. You do not have to be subscribed to The Athletic in order to receive it, but the hope is that through the coverage that you see delivered to your inbox, uh, you will want to read it and, and join. And I think that you'd be happy with that decision. Um, and thank you to Kennington Smith third and Seth Emerson for joining earlier on in the show. Uh, I know we're SEC heavy right now, guys. Hang in there. Uh, but when Nick Saban retires, it just requires a lot of discussion. And um, it's been fun to kind of see how that's all played out. So, Chris, thank you so much. Uh, Thank you all for listening. We will catch you guys next week. That was the latest edition of Until Saturday.